On the other side of Texas, history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong. But on hey there, the other howdy. Thanks for tuning Texas, in to the other side of Texas and telling your friends along. that you hang out on the other side of Texas. Each edition here, our podcast there up at uh, the Apple Store and on AM 580. I'm pre recording this and I'm sitting here with the lovely Grace Leeson, my little 10 year old blondie Goldie. We are not in Lubbock. We are currently in the mountains by the time you hear this. And uh, we're enjoying ourselves at Oleo Ranch. Grace, what's your favorite? We go to Oleo each year. What's your favorite part of Oleo? Fishing, sleeping, and reading. Okay. So let's take those in order. What's your uh, What's your favorite kind of fish to catch? Whatever I can catch. <laughs> okay. Uh, what are you going to be reading while we're there? What, what are you into right now? Augie and me, Harry Potter, Wrinkle in Time. Okay. Um, maybe we're going to get into some Chronicles of Narnia. What do you think? Sure. Okay. And uh, you like to sleep as well. We sleep a lot, right? Whenever we're in Oleo, there's a lot of sleep to be done. Yep. Yeah. Because we don't have what at the cabin? What's on overhead right now? Electricity. We don't have any electricity, do we? Mm-mm. And everything's gas-fired, propane-driven. Well, let me just tell you. The showers are a nightmare. Why? It's dark. The shower's dark? Is it cold or is it hot or is it just dark? It's however you want it. It's just dark in there. Whenever they can't you, hear you. you got to speak up. It's dark whenever you walk in and take the shower. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and make this call. You're going to catch the biggest fish this year. You're going to catch... No, I'm not. Yeah? Hey... If you believe you will succeed, state Lady Lopes. That's what they said in the 90s in Abernathy, Texas. Yeah. Hey, you're kind of getting into basketball, aren't you? Mm, Huh? You're kind of getting into basketball? Yeah? Yes or no? Yeah. Oh, now she's yawning. Okay. So, with that, Grace, thank you for helping me do this intro. Good show lined up for you today. We are going to get in with uh, some pre-recorded stuff. We're going to continue our series with Brandon Roddinghouse there at the University of Houston, Texas Legislature 101, and part two of our Legislature 101 series. We have Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse at the University of Houston, specializes in the presidency and Texas politics, and uh, you can... Follow him along on Twitter at BG, excuse me, B-J-R-O-T-T-I-N-G-H-A-U-S at what I just said. I won't say it all over again there, Dr. Roddenhouse. <laughs> so uh, part two, what we want to get into is the governor of Texas. And 
the origins there and then into the present date. Uh, what distinguishes a Texas governor from other governors? The Texas governor is as powerful as the Texas governor can make it. And I guess that's one of the biggest differences between the Texas governor and, and other governors. Um, people who study um, governors like I do can point to some um, specific um, powers that governors have across the, the whole country. And one thing we can note is that the Texas governor tends to be on the low side of the actual powers that um, that a governor could yield. So um, it's definitely the case that Texas governors are not as powerful. But the difference is that when a governor can um, get a, um, a kind of central theme of, um, of, of a policy idea or can bend the legislature to his or her will, they can maximize their power. So that said, the governor is really only as powerful as the governor themselves makes it. Yeah, so this continues from part one, the Texan um, aversion to centralized government and to essentially limit the powers of the governor. Yeah, and so that, that's a big factor in, in sort of analyzing how governors operate. Um, to be honest, like looking at any governor, you could kind of envision them um, not doing well because their ability to be able to organize the executive branch and to be able to push the legislature are pretty minimal. Um, what they do is, and how they do it and do it well, is through kind of a use of um, kind of persuasion. And that's obviously something that, it's, um, that has to be um, um, sort of only what they can bring to the table. Um, of the first 12 people to serve as president or governor, seven of them participated in the revolution. We had some really big personalities, right? Sam Houston, Mirabeau B. Lamar, the, um, you know, the individuals who um, were kind of glorified as being, you know, the architects, the, you know, parentage of Texas. Um, and was um, mitigated fairly seriously by both the Constitution of the Republic um, as well as the Constitution of 1876 after the Civil War. So like we talked about in the last um, segment, the Constitution itself limits the executive's ability uh, to be able to do a lot of things um, because in part there was a real um, sort of fear of centralized government and a real anger with how the governors that immediately preceded the Civil War had acted. So the governor then became, in the words of Randall Woods, who is a historian um, on the South, that the Texas governor essentially was no more than a peer among equals. That's not the way we think of chief executives, but for most of the, the governorships um, and that we have seen, that's tended to be the case. Hmm. So tell me, I've got questions, but go ahead and tell me something else yeah. I need to know. I would say, um, just to kind of list a couple of ways in which this occurred over the years and how governors became more powerful, I'll list a couple of governors people may not have heard of. The first is Governor James Pinckney Henderson, who served as the first governor of Texas, actually, um, in 1846. Um, he was gaunt, uh, he had a kind of angular face, looked a little bit like James Monroe, um, he had a thin, grim mouth. Um, the legislature had set the foundations for Texas in a way that dealt with infrastructure problems like creating new counties and um, organization of state courts and, and developing a new state penitentiary. But um, Governor Pinckney sort of saw beyond that, and he saw a state that could um, kind of, given its location and given its natural resources, um, be um, a kind of beacon for the country. And so he was really the first modern governor um, to address substantive problems, um, that is, the need for a new school system, adequate 
inadequate kind of public buildings, uh, a state militia, and also to tackle the problem of debt and, and financing since the Lone Star State was broke at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a great fact, too, that I'll throw in here. Um, so this is, occurs at the point in time where war broke out between Mexico and the U.S. This is in the spring of 1846. Governor Henderson takes a leave of absence from the governorship to lead Texas troops into battle. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, it's hard to imagine the governor doing that now, but at the time it was sort of much more common. Uh, it gives us a sense, I think, for how Henderson, although kind of forgotten largely the history, was somebody who really uh, kind of shaped what the governorship could be. But but since then, of course, there have been governors who have failed mightily for all kinds of different reasons, whether it be scandal or just lack of vision. Um, so it's, I think, a good sort of way to think about the governor as, again, sort of what they make it, right? They can make it something grand, and they can use it to their political advantage and for the good of Texas, or they can do very little, and things tend to sink into oblivion. And give me a couple who made it grand and a couple who completely botched it. Yeah, um, I would say um, I'm going to offer two people who made it grand. Um, one is another governor people don't talk much about, and that's um, um, Alicia Pease, who served uh, just before the Civil War uh, from 1853 to 1857. He kept Texas stable in a very unstable political time. Um, he signed the Common School Act, in which created the sort of system of public schools we now sort of think of today. Um, he also uh, signed the General Railroad Law Act of 1854, which was a grant to railroad companies to um, essentially um, to build railroads in the state, which it needed. The state was thought to be basically going to, you know, was going to be a major pass-through for the West, and Texas's would basically Texas would basically rise or fall based upon you know the, its role as a hub in the nation. So this is a big issue. Um, nowadays, they probably call it corporate welfare, <laughs> right? But um, but it certainly at the time was something that the state needed. Um, he also engaged in um, a significant civil and criminal code re, um, redo, which the state also needed. So, um, and after actually, so after he left the governorship, he um, and after Reconstruction came and went, he served as um, a pardon broker, somebody who would work with the governor at the time to kind of figure out, you know, who were um, you know people who were could be counted on to be, you know pulled the text back in the Union. Um, he also attended the Constitutional Convention of 1866, which rewrote the Constitution after the Civil War. So he was somebody who we don't tend to think of a lot, but who um, did a lot to kind of stabilize Texas before and after the Civil War. Um, in terms of developing a modern governorship, Rick Perry is, to me, the most outstanding figure in this. Um, now, I'd love him or hate him, and the politics aside, he developed um, a kind of series of practices that really pushed um, the governorship into a modern institution that we see today. Again, you know, it depends on who is governor and how they're willing to use that power, but he shaped the Texas governorship into a much more powerful governorship than he left it with. So that's something that not a lot of, um, not a lot of governors do. Um, some of the worst what, um, well, have... Let me ask you oh, about... Sorry, okay, yeah, yeah. What, were, what yeah. were two things that he used to really bulk up that office? You know, the two that come to mind instantly are, um, actually, I'll say three. Number one, a, a clear vision for sort of how to pursue um, legislative, uh, his legislative agenda. Um, and again, you know, like it or not like it, um, it was something that governors hadn't done as frequently. Um, you'd have to go back to, um, you know, um, sort of Alan Shivers to find a kind of ideologically um, sort of developed a, um, a, a, an outcome. 
Um, number two, the appointment power was huge. Obviously, he was in office for longer than anybody else, so he had more opportunities to do so, but that was a major factor. Um, and the third is that um, he called uh, many special sessions, and I think that there was a kind of sense that although the governorship obviously is a partner in the legislative process, he was really the one who was assigning um, you know, the, the, the process. He was the one who was really deciding when to meet. And so I think that legislators in the time period Perry was governor kind of felt like they had to be on their game and they had to be ready to, to be able to jump into a special session. Um, special sessions are costly and politically they can be pretty risky, but um, you know, that's something that he really used to his, to his great effect. Hmm. Before you move into two poor examples hmm. of governors, let me just tell listeners that this audio is, again, part two of a five-part series. You can go to our Apple podcast and find uh, the Texas Legislature 101 series, also be on other side of Texas. So give me two guys who really botched it, who really screwed up. I would say that the, probably the two that are, are pointed to as the worst are first Edmund Davis, who was um, their governor during Reconstruction. Um, he was um, a, a, one of the first Republicans, obviously, because um, uh, Reconstruction put Republicans back in office. Um, he had a centralized control over the appointment process, like all the way down to like state education committee officials. Um, at the time, it was not as organized as it is today, but it would be the equivalent to like basically appointing board members on like local boards of education. <laughs> like that mm. level of micro, people did not like that. So like we talked about, the Constitution in 1876 was changed to basically not allow that to happen. Um, the, he had uh, engaged in what some people called arbitrary taxation. So in the summer of 1871, there was a taxpayer convention that was assembled basically to challenge him on this issue. Um, and so he uh, was considered a radical Republican at what the does, time, they called them. Mm. What does arbitrary taxation mean? Well, um, part of it um, was that you know he had imposed certain kinds of taxes on certain kinds of goods, um, and it was thought that it wasn't vetted enough through a kind of proper channels. Mm. Um, it's no different than taxation, you know, debates today, right, where people, uh, you know, want to have a good reason for a certain kind of tax. In fact, much of the history of, uh, of Texas governors is trying to convince the legislature to find a certain tax. We think now of taxes as being abhorrent, and you know, no. Republican would raise taxes in that same way, but for almost every session for a good 50 years, taxes were raised. And so, um, again, this is part of the limitation the Constitution tries to set out to not give the governor power to be able to kind of um, do this at least unilaterally. Um, Davis um, did not want to leave office, so the election um, uh, occurs, um, and uh, Richard Koch is the um, is the, is chosen to be the winner in an unusual um, um, uh, effect. Um, and uh, basically, Davis um, decides that he is going to stay in office, and so he literally barricades himself inside the Capitol building where the governor's office was at the time, uh, and he has to be you know kind of prodded out. Um, he appealed to the Grant administration in Washington to um, you know give him. Some um, some respite and to help him in this case and Governor or President Grant basically said you're on your own. So <laughs> eventually, there uh, uh, Koch and his followers were able to infiltrate the Capitol and uh, take command of government. But I think that um, that alone probably is enough to put him in the bad column. How, how, um, how, the other is um, go ahead. 
Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, the other is um, uh, Lee Papio Daniel. Um, who, have you ever seen the movie, um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, the Coen mm-hmm. Brothers movie? Um, the Charles Durning character is basically the Papio Daniel character. Oh, or sorry, no, the, um, the person, Homer Stokes, the person running against um, the Charles Durning character is the kind of Papio Daniel character. Um, he's a reformer, he's a Democrat. Um, he ran a platform of the Ten Commandments, and the, his motto, he said, was the Golden Rule. Um, overall, that's not bad, but that's not much of a legislative agenda. Um, he promised to pay uh, $40 million in pensions, which was something that was unheard of at the time. That's a lot of money for the 1930s and 40s. Um, there was no support for this at all. The legislature had no concept of how they would find that money. Um, one of the things he did, too, when he was leaving office is he appointed uh, Andrew Jackson Houston to the Senate. This was after Morris Shepard died in 1941. Um, at the time, Andrew Jackson Houston was a descendant of Sam Houston. He was 71 years old. Um, he agreed um, um, to, uh, to, appoint Jack, to appoint Jackson Houston, um, and it was seen as a veiled opportunity for him to basically succeed his own appointee in the Senate, which eventually he did. The only race Lyndon Johnson ever lost was that 1941 Senate race to Papio Daniel, wow. and it was thought that widespread fraud was part of the story. Um, wow. Johnson eventually gets his later on through probably also fraudulent means, but um, yeah, so a Daniel kind of goes down on so the now most we, ignominious list. Now we know where LBJ learned it. He, he learned right. it by losing the first time. There's no doubt that LBJ <laughs> reacted um, uh, when he ran uh, for the Senate in the same way that O'Daniel had. So, talking about fair play, I guess. Wow. So, we would be remiss here. Not People think about, if I said to most Texans, tell me about uh, a Texas political legacy, uh, Texas royalty, I would hear, I would hear several different names. Uh, I'd hear the Bushes, right? Uh, you go through lots of different folks, but what I won't hear much about is what I want to hear you talk about here is we're talking about the governor, and that's the mm-hmm. Ferguson legacy, Ma and mm-hmm. Pa Ferguson. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I would put them probably close um, to O'Daniel on the list of, <laughs> um, of bad operators. Um, it's a legacy nonetheless. <laughs> Right. At least people are talking about you, right? I mean, they were in a similar um, um, era as O'Daniel. They were progressives. They were, um, you know, looking for ways to help people. Uh, Paul Ferguson was elected on a kind of ticket to help the, you know, kind of common man um. some dire straits during the Depression. But it turns out that he mostly ends up kind of lining the pockets of his political cronies. Um, he ultimately was impeached for, um, it, it, at least on paper, for creating a kind of slush fund that wasn't um, accounted for in a way that was um, common at the time. And uh, that uh, ultimately led to his political downfall. He also ran afoul of the University of Texas. That's something that you don't want to do. <laughs> no legislature, no governor has had success running afoul of the University of Texas. And so this also didn't endear him to many. Um, he eventually he resigns because um, he is impeached. He is not removed from office, but rather impeached. The Senate passes a rev- resolution saying, you know, don't come back. <laughs> we know we didn't. We know that we didn't ultimately remove you from office, but you are barred from running for governor again. Well, 
you know, he can't run, but his wife can run. So Ma Ferguson runs, um, uh, you know, years later, uh, and ultimately also ends up in her own scandals, pardon scandals in this case. She is basically trading um, pardons for um, for money, and uh, that uh, ends up being uh, her downfall. Um, the slogans were great. They were um, along the lines of, um, you know, you know, me for Ma, I don't have a darn thing against Pa. <laughs> so the idea was you're going to get two for one, you're going to get two governors for one. A lot of people didn't like that. And ultimately, she ends up um, losing in her uh, in a reelection bid. So uh, if there is that taint on the Ferguson's, how yeah. what's the story behind her political success or campaigning success? Yeah, I think part of it is that, you know, Texas has always been a place where populism has a strong strain. And that was front and center during much of that era. So the success that she had and that O'Daniel had and that Paul Ferguson had were all connected to that kind of populism. Um, so a big part of, um, yeah, so a big part of the Democratic kind of philosophy at that time um, was that kind of cowboy populism. And that's what pulled a lot of the conservative people into the Democratic Party and kept them in the Democratic Party until, you know, the 1970s when the labels start to change and the Democratic Party becomes a party of, what do they call it, acid, abortions, and amnesty. So the label changes and sort of people begin to gravitate towards the Republican Party as the party that's the more, you know, kind of conservative populist party. Yeah. Okay. So I I like my hobby stories about the hobby family. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the dynasty. I get it. The Bush is a dynasty. Yeah. But we need to talk about the Fergusons from time to time. I often have heard people say, if this state could survive the Fergusons, it can survive <laughs> fill in the blank. That's so, right. That's right. Uh, this is a resilient state, right? Give me, give me a couple of points to close out here with the governor, things that people who followed or just beginning to follow Texas politics ought to know about the governor? Yeah, I think number one um, is that, that, you know, governors in Texas aren't designed to be strong figures. So they're limited in terms of what they can do institutionally. So I always like to tell people, like, give them a break, right? There's only so much they can do because they don't have the powers other governors have to be able to appoint people like the attorney general and like, um, you know, comptroller, things like that. Um, we have um, limited powers within the scope of what they do. So that's one thing to consider when judging um, when judging um, governors. Um, another, though, is to, you know, consider how they run the administrations, right? So the fact that they um, have some control over uh, different boards and commissions suggests that there is some accountability there. I think that the accountability is attenuated because there's this perception the governor kind of stands alone, like they're in their own corner and everybody else, all these other elected officials in the executive branch kind of do their own thing. Um, I think the governor can and should be held accountable for some of these things. Um, the problem is people don't know where to draw that line. So understanding that the governor has some responsibility over what's happening in government is a big is a big factor here. Um, and finally, just you know, how does the governor use their power? I mean, are they persuasive? Um, um, are they uh, visionary? That's a big factor in terms of like not only deciding who you're going to vote for for governor, but also evaluating you know whether governors are successful or not. Yeah, one thing that I would be uh, that we ought to throw in here is. The governor's power, I think, so it could be, the argument could be made, the strongest form of governor, governor power is vetoing legislation. Yeah. So there's yeah. the negative. That's right. Yeah. 
there, and one thing the Texas governor has that the you know the president doesn't have is a line item veto. So governors have been fairly circumspect at you know kind of scissoring off specific pieces of um, funding that they don't necessarily like. Um, and there have been recent rules that basically give the governor a lot of more authority than than the governors in the past have used to be able to you know, kind of scalpel off funding that they don't really like from a, from a budget. So that's a pretty serious tool that um, the governors can use after the fact. Yeah. I think they call that negative incentives. Is the That's word. right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or what some people call the governor's gift. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, that closes off part two. Part three coming up. Uh, appreciate the time there, Dr. Roddinghouse. Looking forward to the next three. My pleasure. Me too. Wine. West Texas. Did you think that those paired very well? Well, Katie Jane Seaton does. And uh, Katie Jane's with us here, Farmhouse Vineyards. And I'm just intrigued, Katie Jane, about uh, the whole wine industry developing in West Texas, but also the people who are behind it. And there are folks who reached out to me, said, oh, you, you got to talk to Katie Jane. So I contacted you and here you are on the other side of Texas. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. We're really excited to be featured. So Katie Jane, a couple of things as you just throw out those two lines. One is that's not a West Texas accent. Where, where do you come from? <laughs> On clarification, I'm not a Yankee. I would just like to, to throw that out there. Um, I am originally from Oregon, uh, born in Washington, raised in Oregon, spent quite a bit of time in Northern California, and then got to, to Texas just as fast as I could. Spent um, seven or eight years in Austin and the Hill Country. And then long story short, I came to Leveland for a High Plains Wine Growers Wine and Music event had a four-hour conversation with a grape grower, a cotton farmer, peanut-growing grape grower, mm. um, that Diversive. I had known, right, right, that I had known uh, in, the, in, in the industry um, that I would see once a year at our statewide convention, but never really got to visit with at length. We had a four-hour conversation, and we agreed to get married. We eloped 42 days later in my mom's yard, and in Oregon, and then boom, I became a West Texas housewife, which is hence for our flagship wine named housewife. Uh, and that is that. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So hold on. So you had some knowledge of of grapes and uh, wine before you arrived in West Texas, right? It's true. I did. I was the executive director for. Texas Hill Country Wineries, which is the marketing association for the number two wine destination in the nation, second only to Napa, uh, which is the beautiful Hill Country setting one hour from either San Antonio or Austin in Central Texas. Okay. And you married Nicholas. I did. I married Nicholas Seaton, whose family is large, um, and he got into the grape growing industry via the Binghams. Um, which are settled the Need More Meta area, and they're related to the cuisines. We're related to it. Just goes on. I've been meeting relatives um, on a regular basis since I moved here nearly five years ago. It'll be five years ago in July. So yeah. everybody, or what? Technically August, end of July, August. Everybody who had that bet going 
and it probably wasn't going to work out. I think they can cash in those chips. It's going to be okay. I'm here. I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sticking. Not I'm stuck. Yeah. I came out wrong. I'm sticking. It's going to stick. Okay. The haboobs. Everybody was very worried about a haboob, but I'm, I'm still here. Well, I, t- I tell you so what. It's my, been an amazing blessing. <laughs> my mother, let's just talk about your perceptions for just a second before we talk about business titans in the uh, in the grape growing industry. My mother moved out here when she was, I think, just 18. She married a guy in Nashville and my father. Oh, wow. I love uh, Nashville. Who, yeah. had, who had roots out here. His family moved to Nashville. He got back here as soon as he could. And uh, she moved out here sight unseen uh, with a little bit of buyer's remorse because she lived out on a turn row while her husband cotton farmed. But, yeah, it's a little bit different scene, isn't it, Katie Jane? It absolutely is. It absolutely is. What is so great is people tell you, like, oh, you know, they warn you, um, about the weather and they warn you about a lot of things they say, but you can't beat the people and you can't beat the people. And, and it's true. It's really true. And after your, your, I mean, after the sandstorms and after you encounter a various amounts of things and, um, you really begin to realize that it is the people who are just absolutely steadfast. And I'll tell you a funny story. I would call, I would get a bit defeated at, um, a few things and I would call home to my sister who lives on Bainbridge Island off of Seattle and 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 finally one day she said what is it that you need to know like what and I just asked her straight up I'm like I just don't understand I'm not seeing it I'm not seeing why anyone would choose here I, I, and she just said well how do you know they chose it how do you know their oxen didn't die right because we come from the Oregon Trail mm. the only thing that stopped our people with dysentery yeah <laughs> right Hmm. And so, and it made such sense to me. I was like, well, perhaps, perhaps, and I I don't want that to be taken wrong, but it was like, perhaps you're right. I mean, and it, the planes did look very different then, right? The ground wasn't all broken out. And and then I began to really look at it differently. And, and now, um, just last week, I, I'm a big hashtag person if you follow any of our social media platforms, and it depends on how you feel about hashtags, but I'm passionate about them. I loved the pound sign, clear back when it was the pound sign. Um, and I truly and authentically um, wrote, you know, in my high plains hometown, and, and it feels like home to me. And I have now given birth to a Texan, so I feel like that legitimizes me for any question that might have been. But really, I've only been a microcosm of a Texan, but my married into um, eight generations combined of farming families. And Mm. that has been, that has been the blessing. You know, often we play David Blake Terrell was a Texas songwriter and he wrote a song called Prairie Town. I don't know if you're familiar with Mm -hmm. it or not, but we play it in our bumper music. And there's a line in the song where he says they need just a few more and need more. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's, uh, that's yes. Good. The only blue chin. I mean, everybody marks. You know, that's how you know where you're at, right? Yeah. yeah. So, which like where you're at? Katie, Katie Jane Seaton is part of a growing wine operation in Brownfield at Grape Growers, and 
look, you're an ag economics major. Like we talk about you being green to West Texas, but you come here with plenty of shingles and credentials, ag economics major, and you are also executive director of the High Plains Winery Association. Talk to me a few, and for listeners, some of us know a lot about peanuts. A lot of us know a lot about cotton, but tell us about the the takeoff of grape growing here in this part of West Texas, just west of the Caprock. Well, it started um, years ago with the advent um, of a couple of really progressive doctors, Dr. You know, with Yana Staccato and and Dr. McPherson and and all of that. And and like anything, when people first start, right? You know, you only know what you know, and then you do that thing where you seek consultants, and consultants come out and they provide you with knowledge of what works from their area and um that doesn't always work in terroir as they say or dirt or sand as we have here um that is unlike anything other than mars i mean there's we have had people come through here that the growing conditions um we had some specialists just last spring that were like oh we're doing some beta testing some um nutrient programs that are fit for this area because it's the closest to growing on Mars. And, and they were from NASA and I just fell out laughing. I was like, this is fantastic. Like you cannot make this stuff up. But hmm. um, one of the things that I, and I, I did a Fox 34 interview today. Um, I am one of four partners for our personal vineyards. Farmhouse Vineyards is made up of four owners and it is my husband and myself, Nicholas Seaton, and then Anthony and Tracy Ferguson. Nicholas and Tracy are brothers, brother sisters. So it's a brother sister combo. And then I like to say the two fun creative spouses. And again, they have grown up farming. And Anthony is from Maple or Three Way, if you're familiar with up north that area by the state line. Um, and we are one of the 40 members for High Plains Wine Growers Association. And when you talk about growing grapes, whatever region you may be from, be it the West Coast or the East Coast, or um, if you are part of the <laughs> Italian or French region, if you began clear back when Christ decided to first turn water into wine, whatever that may be, each region um, usually has one or maybe two pressures that they suffer from. It can be pest, it can be drought, it can be freeze. Um, the things that makes the high plains different is we have them all. We have literally every plague in the Bible, right? So we suffer from late freezes and then hot dry winds and pest, and then we can have rains that come late that can cause molds and spores and all kinds of things. So we don't just face one or two challenges. We face every single growing challenge or every single growing challenge. But we have conquered, we have mechanized and conquered, and we turn up premium quality cotton and premium quality peanuts and all of our row crop commodities. And we are now taking that knowledge and that generational stewardship that we have in our row crop commodities and we're putting it into our vineyards. 
and it's absolutely showing. And so it's just a matter of time. I don't know that anyone ever conquers a vineyard per se, um, simply because vineyards are made up of individual vines and each vine is a woman. (laughs) It's a lot like having 1,400 wives on a row. And so I, I just, that would be really, really presumptuous to say a vineyard could be conquered. A vineyard should be respected. How's how's that like a woman? Well, each vine has its own vine and every year she performs differently. Every year she gives birth to fruit and, and it's every year is a different challenge and every year is a different condition and you can train her up as much as you like, but she's going to behave differently. Um, yeah, I've, I've got a 10-year-old one of those. <laughs> yeah, you do, right? You have mm-hmm. twins? Do you have twins? Twin girls? Yeah, well, no, I've got the 10-year-old, yeah. and then she's got two twin brothers. Yeah. Oh, twin brothers. Okay, you know, sorry. Four-year-old four in tow. But, yeah, I mean, she's uh, she yeah. gives me the 10-year-old going on 18-year-old business now. So yeah, Attitude. Gotcha. Yeah. And lots of times when in the world of viticulture and in the world of wine, both on the fruit side of things and later in the bottle, um, and certainly back when you get into old world literature, when spoken about wine, it is always, always referred to in the female sense of the word. Mm. Um, it's because they all have a mind of their own. Yeah. And the sooner you learn that, the better off you'll, the better off you'll be. But the thing that makes the High Plains just unique in its own way is not only do we suffer from those challenges, but we rise to the occasion, um, we mitigate them, we outlay the cash to overcome them, and we turn out premium fruit yeah. in spite of them. So admittedly, Katie Jane Seaton here uh, with us, Farmhouse Vineyards, Admittedly, I don't know much about grapes, and I don't know much about the whole vineyard wine operation, but I do know a lot of cotton guys, and what I hear from them is, well, if prices don't change, I'm going to diversify, and I'm going to look at sunflower seeds, and more and more, Mm -hmm. I'm hearing them say, well, we're going to look at grapes, and is it right that grapes grow better in drought than than most row crops? Yeah, so everything in grapes is what what they call site-specific. It's hard to have such a generalization, but um, you can utilize your water. Basically, I mean, bottom line, the water that that you're left with and the land that you're left with, you can better utilize. Some, um, Some sites and some varieties use about the same amount of water as cotton. Um, some use less. It's just you have the opportunity to put it out differently, utilize it differently, or use less if you choose, depending upon the program you're doing or the client that you have and the structure or the type of wines that they've decided to make. Okay. So it just gives you more control um, of when you bring that in. Lots of times, if you get a if you water properly throughout the winter and you have a good nutrient program, depending upon your weather, you can, you don't have to like building heat units and cotton. You can turn off the water. Um, once you've got a good fruit set and at the end of the ripening with the grapes and going to stress that your sugar. 
So it allows the farmer more control and not dependent upon the weather. But you, so Katie Jane Seaton, 112 acres of grapes out in Brownfield. Tell us a little bit about the growth of the business over the past couple of years and where folks can go. And whoa, 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 whoa. Disclaimer. You do not advertise on this program. You, you, nobody, you know, well, I shouldn't say anybody in the immediate family or anybody involved with farmhouse vineyards, uh, sponsors the program yet, yet, but this is not a pitch for farmhouse vineyards. This is me doing some, uh, curiosity into growing edges in West Texas and, uh, vineyards are certainly part of that. But tell us about the growth of the business over the past couple of years and uh, where you, if there's been any expansion. That is true. However, I would like to shamelessly invite you out to our tasting room as well as anybody listening, um, which is located in Terry County in Brownfield, Texas. Um, and it is called White House Parker. It's a tribute to um, the Parkers who owned the automotive store. And it is separate. Farmhouse Vineyards was our, um, it is the name of the original vineyard where we just sold fruit to our clients um, originally as, as growers. And then growers get into the wine business for one of two reasons. They either have um, extra fruit from a bumper crop left over or a winery walks a contract and they have extra fruit. So um, we were fortunate. We had, we've had both, but the first time around, we just had a little bit of extra fruit and thought, well, we'll, we'll make a very tongue-in-cheek wine. And that's how Housewife came about. I thought we'd make it and, you know, spend about a year and a half in the wine business. That's my entire background had been that. And I thought, oh, we won't really want to stay in it. The wine business can be taxing and exhausting. And then that was um, three years ago. And we now have two tasting rooms, one in the High Plains and one in the Hill Country. So White House Parker is located in Brownfield. We also have a, and it's a 1941 renovated farmhouse that sits on a 22-acre vineyard right there in town on Old La Mesa Road. We're open um, Thursday through Saturday, noon to 6. We love for people to come out. You can follow us on Facebook or look us up at farmhousevineyard.com. And then we have a 1978 renovated Airstream tasting room. We're the only Airstream tasting room in the state. Um, it was always my dream to roam about the state in an Airstream with my pet rooster, Willie Nelson. May God rest his soul. And wear moomins and smoke cigars. That did not happen. I ended up getting married and becoming a farmer's wife. And so um, we kept we kept the rooster for the logo, and we found this amazing Airstream. And we are using it um, not as a revenue stream, but mostly a marketing arm because it's right there in Johnson City, and it allows us to educate people about where our fruit can be found um, for the best of the best clients. We, I proudly say that I, we're not boastful. We just mean it. We are adamant about the quality of our grapes and who we allow to be on our client list, how we farm, and who we put our fruit in the hands of, and that caliber of winemaker that is has a residency at what winery. 
and it is absolutely the best of the best. They're listed on our website. And so when you go and taste at the Airstream, um, you kind of get a preview of that with our wines. And then we say, okay, go on down the wine trail or go north or south and look for farmhouse. We also bring in other growers and other wineries on a Monday night um, kind of for a late tasting. And we feature who's doing what in the industry that is cool or deserves attention because we want to see it go further. You want to see the industry go further. Absolutely. In in West Texas. In West Texas, in all of Texas. Okay. Wine is good for for the economy. It's been amazing to watch the young people that work in our vineyard um, understand that it is skilled labor. It has fantastic economic benefit. You know, hoe hands... um, and field labor in the past with row crops and, and other commodities can be seasonal work and transient work and you follow it around and the ladies work for us um, now and it's families. We've been really fortunate to be able to have the same families work for us for years on end and they're making million dollar decisions when they're pruning. When you prune grapes, you're, you're pruning for two years. You're pruning for that year and the wood that's going to come up for the next year. And that's not to be taken lightly, right? Hmm. So, yes, you're on one vine, but then that one vine is on that one row, and that one row is on that one acre, and that one acre is part of a 30-acre vineyard, which is on one block on a site. So you're looking at 70 acres Hmm. at anywhere from $1,500 to $1,700 to $2,000 a ton. You're talking real money there. Well, listen. So they're making million-dollar decisions, and they deserve the credit. Well, I want to taste some uh, million-dollar decisions, and maybe we can come out, or maybe uh, I would love to could, have you come out. Maybe you guys could bring a bottle by. Just throwing that out to you. <laughs> yeah. uh, tell us, <laughs> Kate Jane, where folks can find the website and find more about you guys. Okay. Well, we're at Farmhouse singular. When you speak of us conversationally, we're farmhouse vineyards, plural, but on the web URL, we are farmhousevineyard.com. We can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Although please don't judge. Um, Tracy and I, the housewives, the farmhouse mommies, we have four kids, six and under. We farm and we've got the two tasting rooms and we try and cook a dinner from time to time. So our Pinterest boards, they're pretty lax, but um, we do lots of events. We do Petticoats on the Prairie shows. Um, from time to time, we do some pop-up events. We'll be at the Leveland Sip and Swirl on Friday. That's tomorrow. We have an awesome wine club. I'll talk about that because you should know about that. You love all things cool and unique Texas. Um, we're the only farm-to-table wine club in the state. And by that, we mean when we ship our three wines to you, you also get two seasonal product, two seasonal products from the farm. So we've shipped cotton honey from hives that are in the cotton fields, as well as infused peanut butter, um, organic black-eyed peas. We go melons and peas and all kinds of things of that nature. And this this shipment alone that just went out with three um, beautifully dry rosés, very different dry rosés, but three rosés nonetheless. 
included. And it was too hot to ship. These are the kind of things that happen when you have wine from West Texas. Our shipping was scheduled for the 2nd of June. We had this huge heat wave. There's no way we're putting our wines on a truck. So we had our pickup parties and then we, you know, called on the relatives and we farmered it, right? Who do you know in this town or Uncle Bob or so-and-so that can deliver wine? Friends, family, ambassadors. Um, But we included planting peanuts and we challenged our wine club members to go ahead and plant peanuts at home. And if they can bring their, their plant, we did, we sent them Spanish peanuts. If they can bring their plant to fruition, so to speak, pardon the pun, in October, like when our guys are doing it, um, they will earn a great reward package from Farmhouse. We want to use wine as a platform. If we can use wine as a platform because it's a attractive, sexy lifestyle product to better educate people about agriculture overall, then we will have done our jobs, period. All right. Well, Katie Jane Seaton, thank you for taking time and uh, being with us here on the other side of Texas. And we'll uh, put all the info up with uh, the post of this audio. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much. And above all, please pray for rain. (laughs) That's right. Thank you, Katie Jane Seaton.